and welcome to Conversations with the Legal Academy, a podcast from the University of Arkansas School of Law. My name is Dorinda Sharp. And I'm Colin Hesse. On this episode, Lua Kamal Ual, Associate Professor at the University of Kansas School of Law, talks with Dorinda about her research on the myth of autonomy in March of 2018 as part of the Law School Speaker Exchange. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, thanks for joining us. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Awesome. You're here for our speaker exchange, talking about the myth of autonomy. And would you mind telling me a little bit about that paper and what you plan to talk about with our faculty? Sure. So, you know, autonomy, that idea is really sexy. Um, People like to hear about it. People like to think about it. It's sort of at the core of the American dream. And so my research question was really, what is the role of autonomy in American law? And how does law um, promote autonomy? Um, And what does autonomy mean for sort of the Anglo-American legal system? And I wanted to then ask a question about if I looked at this sort of value from a different lens, um, would it hold the same weight? And when I shine this different lens on it, uh, it turned out that we don't actually really care about autonomy. So we say, and and when I say we, um, I think we actually, I, I, I mean that both sort of as humans, as we really live, but also the law, which is at least theoretically created and made to serve humans and human values. So, you know, it's America. We want to be independent. We say, don't tread on me. Um, We want to, in some ways, uh, limit the government. Um, And if we don't want to limit the government, what we say we're doing is asking the government to help us be autonomous. And what does autonomous mean? self-directed individuals. Um, But if we actually look at the laws, uh, it turns out that what we're really asking the government to help us do is be able to respond to the universal constant human condition. And what's the universal constant human condition? The fact that we're vulnerable, right? Like we're born as babies and we need people to help us. We get really old and again, we need people to help us. And throughout the life cycle, we keep returning to this state of vulnerability. And we build institutions like families and schools um, and banks um, in order to help us confront the fact that we are living in these corporeal bodies that can be hurt. And because those institutions are human institutions, they can be hurt. And what we really are focused on is figuring out and creating structures, not so that we can be independent and, uh, you know, live life as Robinson Crusoe's on desert islands, um, but so that we can live together and so that we can forge paths um, through which and towards which we we can face this vulnerability that we can't get rid of. So it's fascinating. What led you to that? So for maybe the past three years, uh, I've been engaging and thinking about um, an approach to legal analysis called vulnerability theory. And vulnerability theory, you know, essentially says, what happens if we just accept the fact that we're human and that the core thing that all humans share 
all the time, whether they're rich or poor, is this state of vulnerability. Wow. Was there a, a catalyst that brought you so, to that? So externally, my scholarship looks like it is exploring a lot of different <laughs> topics and ideas. Um, and I was working on a paper uh, that looked at the corporation. And what I wanted to understand, one of the things I write about is the corporation. But I'm not actually interested in like Enron for Enron's sake or Disney for Disney's sake. What I want to understand in terms of the corporation is how humans engage in corporate activity for the purpose of building and creating property. And I sort of think of property really broadly as like all of these valued resources. And as I started looking at that idea, um, I came across this, this research that suggested or that led me to suggest actually that we care about property because property is one of those ways that we protect ourselves mm-hmm. or that we allow ourselves to respond to our vulnerability, right? Like super easy property is obviously a house. And because we're humans, we need shelter, right? Like we can't, we were, you know, it's, it's cold today. <laughs> we can't live outside in extreme cold. So we need shelter um, and property systems and uh, real property systems allow us to confront that by giving us a space within which we can shelter ourselves. And looking at that and starting to understand uh, that that's what people are doing in the corporation and then looking at corporate law to understand whether and to what extent it actually is responsive to why people are building and creating these corporations in the first place, um, led me to sort of understand corporations through this whole new light. And then I said, what else can I look at um, and question from this new perspective? That's great. So my maternal grandfather um, bought a bunch of land as early as he could. And one of the things I found out later in life, he lived through the Depression, and one of the things I found out later in life was that his purpose in that was that so his entire family would have a place to go. If everything fell apart again, everyone can congregate on the farm, build some sort of structure, work the land, and be okay. And, you know, that's a sort of profoundly universal story. Not everybody actually gets to do that. But the idea of doing that, the logic of doing that makes sense. So my paternal great-grandmother, along with my paternal grandmother, um, you know, African-Americans in early uh, 20th century California, um, basically bought a neighborhood. And it wasn't a farm because they were in Los Angeles. Right. Um, But to this day, there is a small neighborhood that my family owns. And, you know, the family lived in a lot of those houses for a really long time. Um, But they took advantage of something that's actually really rare. African-American women um, in that period having money uh, to buy this property and they, you know, given the, the time, they couldn't finance it. So they had to buy it outright. Um, and it has been sort of a backstop source of security for my family through, you know, generations. Um, and so that, that instinct of making sure we have some place to go, we have some way to eat. Because my family, we're not real estate developers. They don't, like, that's not their, their main thing. My grandmother worked at the post office. And, you know, and then when she was retired, she maintained her properties. Uh, but, but it was really about this 
how do I keep myself? How do I keep my family protected mm -hmm. in case, you know, it all fall, falls apart? So one of the things I noticed when looking at your CV is that you're a reviewer for the Cambridge University Press. And I'm just curious if that has in any way changed your perspective on research or how you go about submitting or any, any of the above. <laughs> you know, I, right now I'm, uh, I have a piece out there in the ether being submitted uh, for publication. And it is a profoundly humbling process. And I actually think it's the process of submitting that, and you know, every time I go back and I do that, it sort of regrounds me mm -hmm. um, to where I am. So this, this weekend, there was an International Women's Day rally. Um, and I was like the featured speaker. And then afterwards, people are like, oh, let me give you my card and da 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 da. We should work together. And so I went home and I sort of was puffed up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then I opened my email and got thanks, but no thanks to a submission. And it sort of brought me back uh, to where I am. And that makes looking at other people's work, it, it takes on a different feel because. You know, when I say whether or not a book proposal should be accepted or not, um, I'm really thinking about not sending that letter that might say no, but giving as much feedback as I can because that blanket, you know, form letter that says no, it might, it's humbling and it's sobering and that's good, but at the same time it doesn't sort of give you any, there's no feedback mechanism. Right. It doesn't give you any direction for, you know, if this, if this doesn't work, what does? Exactly. And thinking about that allows me to really be constructive. And I think most people try to be constructive in terms of how they engage in sort of scholarly feedback. But really, you know, knowing that, you know, like doing a book project is a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, and so having that weight, not that I make the final decision or anything like that, but having that weight um, really helps you be, you know, more constructive yes. than critical. I'm sure you went to law school either knowing exactly what you wanted to do or having no idea what you wanted to do. I was a no idea <laughs> what I wanted to do. I am sort of, I, I would consider myself more of a cautionary tale <laughs> than an inspirational tale. Um, and that does not just start with law school. Um, I went uh, to undergrad. My parents had sort of a very thought out process and their core concern was that once I chose where I was going, um, I wasn't going to get to transfer. You go to one college and you need to go there and in four years you need to be done. That's the setup. And so we did a lot of research. From the time that I was a kid, I was visiting schools and my sister is four years older than me. So even younger, we started sort of visiting colleges, talking about majors and things like that. Um, and then I got six colleges that I could apply to. Um, and that was all about sort of be systematic in your process. Right. And every university that I applied to had to have every major that I listed as like a potential thing that I wanted to study. So this was a real systematic process and then it came down to picking the last two schools. And one was the university that I ultimately went to and one was another university that I thought that I liked more. And on the cover of the like brochure, I'm literally sitting in my room as I don't know, a 16 year old 
Um, and on the cover of the brochure, there was a very cute boy on the <laughs> school that I wound up going to. Um, and there was like a picture of a building uh, on the school that I thought was like the better fit for me. And I was just like, I'm going with the cute boy school. <laughs> and of course, I didn't say this to my parents. Of course not. And it wound up working out really well for me. But that's like sort of bad decision making. Um, then I went to that school and that school, the Johns Hopkins University, gave me amazing opportunities. And one of them was to go live in Italy. Um, and instead of doing a junior year abroad, I did a junior year in grad school and that grad school was in Italy. And I was like 18 and I was living in Italy. Um, and when you're 18 and living in Italy, as great as Baltimore, Maryland is, the freedom of Italy is not replicated in that space. And so it was hard for me to think about going back. Um, and so it's like, what can I do not to go back? And we, friends of mine, we were sitting in my living room in, in the apartment I had in Italy. And we were, I have no idea why, uh, reading our like school's undergraduate manual, like <laughs> all of the regulations. We're sitting there reading it. I went to Johns Hopkins. That tells you a lot of how we could wind up doing that. And we found this special program that said you could go to law school um, in New York instead of going back to undergrad. And I was like, well, what do I have to do to do that? And I needed to just take the LSAT. And if I scored highly enough, they would talk to my professors and then they would determine whether I should go to law school or not. So we all said we were going to do it. But I called my parents, and I had a, a really close friend who lived in Rome. Um, and so I got on a train, went to Rome. I didn't study. I didn't know anything about law school. I didn't know anything about the LSAT. Um, and I took the LSAT across the street from the like Roma soccer stadium. And on the day of the Roma-Lazio match, which are like the crosstown rivals, and I took it in a nunnery, um, and I was late. And my really close Italian friend's mom fought with the nuns to get me into the LSAT. And I took it. And then it was, I didn't hear anything else. And suddenly I got a phone call in June. I was at home in California thinking I was going to go do my senior year in Baltimore. And I got a, like an irate phone call from <laughs> Columbia University School of Law saying that I was irresponsible and hadn't submitted any paperwork. And I was like, but... I don't understand why you want paperwork for me. I go to Johns Hopkins University. And they were like, well, according to our records, you're going to be starting school here in like six weeks. <laughs> um, and so then I went to law school in New York City because I didn't think that I wanted to spend another year in Baltimore. Um, and it worked out really well for me because now I'm a law professor and it was great. Uh, but don't make decisions like that. <laughs> like, think about your life. Yeah. Um, but sometimes, you know, jumping on opportunities as they present themselves is great. Um, but I think that people should probably do it with a little more thought um, than I did. And actually coming into legal academia sort of the second time around is really the first time um, that I sat down. And I made a plan and said, this is where I want to be. Here are the things that I'm going to do to get there rather than here's a great opportunity. I'll take it. Um, so I don't regret anything. And my sort of fly by the seat of my pants life pre-legal academia was wonderful and got me here. Um, but at the same time, do the opposite of what I did. <laughs> <laughs> it all worked out, but it could have gone horribly wrong. It could have wrong. gone horribly wrong. <laughs>
so why, why academia instead of practice? I was clerking in the Ninth Circuit, and my judge is sort of a feeder judge for legal academics. And I got the opportunity, actually, to spend a year as a visiting professor I'm in a number of universities, and I chose the one that was going to let me do uh, what I thought was most interesting. And while I was there, uh, so this was another fly by the seat of my hands. Like, I had a job at a law firm in New York and was like, hey, guys, can I just be on, like, a leave of absence for one more year to go teach? Um, and I really enjoyed legal academia. Um, I thought I had something to say. I thought my ideas were interesting and that I gave good feedback. But I wasn't ready to not practice law because I, at that time, I had practiced for one year. Mm -hmm. I was like, there's a lot of stuff to learn as a practitioner. I was a big law practitioner in New York City. And so eventually I did a couple of other things and then I went back to my law firm. And I was at my law firm through the financial crisis. I was in the room when Washington Mutual Bank failed. Um, like literally we got the phone call from the government and then went to a bar uh, with our clients. I don't drink alcohol, so it was sort of <laughs> particularly surreal for me. <laughs> I had a Sprite, but you know, my clients are there and tomorrow they don't have a job to go back to. And they, you know, they're big bank executives. So terrifying. The landing was soft, but at the same time, the emotion was palpable in the room. And as I started like looking at them, that's just, this is actually on point. Um, as I started looking at them, um, I said, you know, the, the narrative that's out there in the world about these people and about these institutions is a lot different from what I'm seeing, right? These people are a part of this particular banking institution, um, not just because it's a job, not just because they're rainmakers, but that institution is a, is a part of who they are. Their identity is tied up with it. And they want this bank, or they wanted, by then it's too late, right? But they wanted this bank to be successful because the bank's successes were tied to them. And that really sort of was the spark that said, I now know what I want to talk about. And I want to talk about identity and how sort of we go, again, we go about pursuing property, not just to be acquisitive. And we live in a society that's super acquisitive, um, but we're doing that in ways that really affirm who we are and our position in the world. And I saw that not just in the failure of Washington Mutual, but in a lot of my clients during the financial crisis. And then it allowed me to think back over my clients um, over time. I said, everyone, everyone is really out there. And yeah, they're doing their deals, um, but they're also affirming who they are. And that's what made me decide, you know, I was ready to come back um, and have these conversations. And I thought, what if law students could get connected um, to their clients in, in this different way? And what if as lawyers and as a, as a law profession, we were understanding the identity implications of what seem like these really impersonal structures that are out there? Well, apparently it was a good choice. <laughs> Partially I say that because in January you were at an awards ceremony uh, by the Society of American Law Teachers and they gave you their junior faculty teaching award. So congratulations. Thank you. And since you are a, a, a recognized award-winning teacher, uh, what, what advice would you have for law students in general about you know, what they, their time studying 
what they should do before they hit the career path, anything like that? You know, this is hard advice to take. Um, but I think that the best thing law students can do is stop gaming the system. <laughs> so law students like to do things like buy commercial outlines. And law students like to do things like look at other people's outlines. And I'm not like a huge proponent of outlining and things like that. Um, but law students like to game the system. Um, and I actually think, and I know that this is true in my, my classes, I, you know, I don't recommend any given commercial outline because I, I don't teach from them. Um, and prepackaged, pre-digested knowledge is not actually very helpful when what the sort of the game of law school is to train you to think in certain ways. And the substantive rules and knowledge that we're that we're engaging is sort of icing on the cake. What we're really doing is training ourselves to instinctively think like lawyers, which is really cliched, but that's really what the project is. Any <laughs> law professor will tell you that's you know what they're doing. That's the skill building process. So if law students stop trying to game that system and instead go into classes and listen to what the professors are asking you to do and do those things, and obviously you have to balance that with life and other obligations. Um, but if you do those things, you're going to have a lot more success. Um, and most of the time, I would say 85% of us, I don't want to go too um, <laughs> ambitious, 85% of us are not trying to hide the ball. Um, we're not trying to give you a trick question to see if you are the next whoever my legal genius mentor or idol is. What we really want to do is give you an opportunity to show how you can think like a lawyer. Um, and so that's the number one piece of advice, but it's hard advice to take because um, our profession, and I think this is a bad thing, but our profession is um, fiercely hierarchical. And our you know, opportunities professionally um, are tied to somewhat arbitrary ranking systems within our, within our schools. So it feels really risky mm -hmm. to take that advice. Um, but my favorite story is the, a student and wound up being the editor-in-chief of the University of Kansas Law Review, um, you know, graduated from the law school with I don't know how many faculty awards sort of universally uh, selected by the faculty as one of the best students in his, in his year. Um, and he was in, I was his first, literally his first class was mine. Um, and I, I start my class and I give a spiel, this is what you should do to, to be successful and you tweak it for yourself, but these are the things that are gonna work for my particular course. Um, and apparently for the first four weeks, he was like, she doesn't know my learning style. She doesn't know who I am. I am going to do what has been really successful for me in the past. And one day after class, he came up to me and he said, Professor Yule, I just thought your class was such a waste of time. It didn't seem like we were doing anything helpful. And then I decided to go back and do what you said. And oh my goodness, your class is amazing. <laughs> and we learn so much. And I said, you know what, that's awesome. Why don't you keep preparing for class the way I suggested? Because it, I'm gonna be honest, if you have not prepared for my class, 
it's a weird thing because you can, you know, come in my class and have great conversations. And there are students who feel like they never have to prepare because you can engage what we're doing in class without having done the reading. Um, but you're not actually going to get what we're trying to do in any given class. Um, and so this student was just like, I felt like your class was a waste of my time until I did what you said I should do. And then I saw that there was so much meat and just how much depth we were going into. Um, and I've been into class after class and I, and I say, wow, if every student was really prepared for this class, there's so much um, going on. But a lot of people have, you know, they're flipping through their canned outline of a case or they have their friend's notes from last year um, and they're, they're just not taking advantage of it. And it shows. And the ranks will still be there and the hierarchy will still be there. But where you are in that hierarchy might change. But even more important than that, um, and I say this to my students every day, you might ha be the person who got a B minus. You might be the person who got a C. But do you want your C to be a C backed up with nothing or a C that's really worth an A? Because, you know, there's outside forces that force me to rank you, right. right? Like I would love and I would feel awful about it, but I would love for my A's and my C's to all be A's to me. Right. Um, and I try to help students get there. And if they follow sort of the advice of their professors, I think more people would get to be, um, you know, the top of the class gets even stronger, um, the bottom of the class gets stronger, and sometimes who's in those piles uh, would change. That's great advice, thank you. Yeah. And thanks for your time. Great. For more information on Conversations with the Legal Academy, show notes, and additional episodes, go to law.uart.edu slash podcast or you can find us at KUAF.com under the local and podcast menu. You can also listen to episodes or subscribe through iTunes or with your favorite podcast app. If you enjoy the show, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts, which will help others find us. Music for Conversations with the Legal Academy was written and performed by Josh Woodward. To keep up with us between episodes, follow the University of Arkansas School of Law on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for UARC Law. That's U-A-R-K-L-A-W. Thank you for listening.